All right. Oh, one. Two. Did I screw it up? No, you're okay. two. So we're just going to all count to Wait, three, I, and then we're going to go. I definitely so go. don't understand. Okay, so just to sync <laughs> on three or after three? You're going to be three, and then we're all going to sync like we're all going to snap. After three. Wait, guys, three, there's no sync. way you've, I mean, you've done this before, and there's no way that's explanation was sufficient for people to understand yeah, what to do. Okay. You do it on the three? Well, you, you came in here like with advanced Zoom, you know. I, have I hope no we're idea. all recording now. That's all. Do you, want me to, yeah. do you want me to do this? Let me do it. Okay, you go ahead. You go ahead. I'm going to say, I'm going to say one, two, three, and on the three, we all snap. Okay. Okay. One, two, three. You guys did it wrong on the three. <laughs> It needs to be all totally the three. Totally messed up. We 100% messed that up. Yeah, try it again. All Let's right. go again. One, two, three. Was okay. It? I think we did that. that was I it. think we did that. Okay. Okay, okay. Hello, and welcome to Talking Too Loud with Chris Savage. I'm your host, Chris Savage, and I'm joined, as always, by Sylvie LeBeau. Sylvie, what has got you talking too loud today? Hi, Chris. So much. I called you Chris. <gasps> I feel like the sound in a video game that's like, you just lost. Savage, what has me talking too loud? Have you watched The Queen's Gambit? Oh, yes. Oh, It has everybody talking too loud. Yes. (laughs) I loved it. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, we finished it like two nights ago. It was dark, right? So dark. Pretty dark. Pretty uplifting. Pretty exciting. I Pretty Uplifting, sad. yeah. Like, let's not give away too many spoilers. That's not but spoiler. you're right. You're right. I said dark. <laughs> you said uplifting. Did it make you want to play chess? It did. And then I thought more about it, and I was like, well, here's the problem: is like, I like to play games. Like, I, I'm very competitive, but I feel like for me to actually be good at chess would take too long. I'm like, I don't think I have that time in my life. Mm, you have to commit to it. Yes, but it did make me want to play. I was like, oh, I should play. This will be so sweet. And I was like, do you have a chess set? I'm like, no. So I'm going to play online against someone? What? No, I just, I I just, I, it fizzled quickly. But what about you? <laughs> did you, did you, does it make you want to play? Or are you going to get into it? It makes me want to play. I'm also afraid of like committing the time to getting good. But I do want to just like, I definitely took, uh, I took chess. My mom had an after school program and I took chess there. Um, I don't remember chess. how wow. to play at all. La-di-da. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a I was a nerd even back then. Yeah. Even back then, wow. nerded out. <laughs> it did make me want to wear only turtlenecks mm. and get like a cool bob haircut. Yeah, the mid century vibe, very strong in that show. Very, yes. very strong. The clothing, the colors, the music. Yeah, it's, uh, it's oh my crazy. Goodness. It's crazy. Oh my goodness. What a delight, Netflix. You've really done it. You have everyone in the country watching the same thing at once, too, which is very shocking, right? I feel like okay, we exited that world and made our way back into it. Chess sets, the sales are up a thousand percent, I read. That That's right. wild. Yeah. A thousand? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. <laughs> 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 I really needed to clear my throat on that. You know that. what? I think it's like Queen's Gambit is it's actually like a turning point in the pandemic because at the beginning we all had Tiger King and it was like we hate ourselves and it's horrible. So and true. then it's like Queen's Gambit's out. 
one, two, three vaccines. Here we go. Like they're coming. They're 90% effective. This is crazy. Like we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Oh, here's an amazing story about this orphan who becomes, you know, this incredible chess master and it's just shot beautifully. And it's just like really <laughs> exciting and uplifting at dark. And it's just, it's just like, yes, this is the turning point of the pandemic is Queen's Gambit for sure. <laughs> oh my god you just went from like three to 20 <laughs> that was epic checkmate really checkmate, checkmate america time to resign that's what they say in the thing when they knock uh, that is what down. they say yeah. that's what they say all right well we have amazing guests for you today here on talking too loud we have andrew mason Andrew is the founder of Groupon and scaled that business. If you know Groupon, made group buying popular. And he started being an entrepreneur in his, his early youth, um, selling bagels door to door, doing a number <laughs> of other wild things. And today, Andrew is running a company called Descript, which allows you to edit audio and video just by editing text. It's wild. It is it's so, wild. It's some wild stuff. They're blowing up. We love the product here at Wistia. Really excited to have them on the pod. So let's turn it over to our conversation with Andrew Mason. Andrew, thank you for thank you for coming on the show. I'm a big fan. Very excited that you're here. I'm also glad that in the tech setup of this, you literally just like <laughs> had us uh, change a bunch of settings and rework our process to make it five times better. So thanks thanks for being here. My pleasure. You know, if we're going to bore people with our conversation, at least we can bore them in high fidelity audio. That's what we're <laughs> looking for. Well, look, I've followed your journey. I followed your journey from when you started Groupon and the insane ride you were on. But I want to kind of dig in. You've been called a lot of different things like idiosyncratic, charismatic, frank, blunt, um, a prankster. In particular, that one for some reason always <laughs> sticks out to me. How how would you describe yourself today versus the Andrew Mason from 2008 when you started Groupon? Hmm. I've always described myself as a prankster. Just love pranks. Just love doing pranks. Uh, no, I've never I've I've <laughs> never described myself that way. Really? Um, no. But I mean, I I think of uh, so I was actually talking to somebody who works at Wistia. Uh, and they described part of the Wistia brand as trying to put creativity places where you don't normally find it. And I guess that's the way that uh, I, I, that resonated with me. I think like getting into business, there's a lot of opportunity to do that because most people aren't thinking about the job that way. And I always, since I've been in business, I've always felt a little bit like an outsider. My degrees in music um, I didn't intend to become an entrepreneur originally, and uh, and so that was just my way of coping with being such an incredible sellout. <laughs> well, it's, it's my degree is in film, right? That's what I did in school, and it's funny. I when I thought about like what my ideal job would be, I wanted to do really creative things. I wanted to make it in the film industry, and then when I decided that that was not going to happen pretty quickly. I was like, oh, maybe I'll make ads. And the reason I'll make ads is those creative houses where it's just like, oh, it's just creativity all day, like coming up with stuff. But I found that I think like building a company is one of the most freeing things in terms of how creative you could be. You know, I was thinking about some of the copy 
that you all would do at Groupon. And we were talking, Sylvia and I were talking about the, the hummingbird thing. Mm-hmm. Do you, can you tell our listeners about that? Like what you guys <laughs> did? I think I'm going to butcher this. Uh, I, I actually can't remember exactly how it started. It was something, there was some kind of a incorrect fact about uh, hummingbirds being born out of cocoons. Is yes, that right. what it was? That's yes. it. That's the one. <laughs> that we included in uh, a write-up and customers would write in correcting us. And our customer service <laughs> staff was just insistent that um, that hummingbirds were indeed born from cocoons. And <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's I mean, you guys funny. went so far as to like Photoshop a National Geographic. Like there was a lot of commitment to, to yes, they do come from cocoons. You know what I'm proud of? I had absolutely nothing to do with that. It's like the, <laughs> there, all I did was kind of plant a little bit of the seeds and the permission in the company for stuff like that to happen. And I didn't find out about it until it was long done. There was a lot of stuff like that at Groupon. I think like, so to get back to your question, I've now done a couple different startups and every company ends up needing its own brand and its own feel and they're, they're not all equal. So for example, my current company, Descript, emerged out of was a company called Detour. It was a audio tour company where we did these really cinematic, immersive, kind of location-based walks or audio walks through cities. And a lot of what we were doing, it was about the content, it was about the story, and the brand had to just get out of the way. So it was a pretty straightforward, serious brand. You didn't want it to have too much personality. In the case of Groupon, that company was, I mean, first of all, we had started out trying to build this platform for social change. It was this company called The Point and people would organize and reach a critical mass of interest in giving money towards something or taking some kind of collective action. And and then all of a sudden, the thing that was working was this like coupon company, right? That that you're getting people to like band together and buy pizzas. And so we were like, guys, are are we really going to do this? And if we're going to be able to do this and live with ourselves, then we have to build a brand that we would love to use. And the one that we would love to use would have a antagonistic relationship with the idea of advertising, which is fundamentally what we were doing. Like it, we, we felt in order to feel credible to our customers, we had to be willing to, to be a little bit ridiculous and undermine ourselves at times. And so that was the tone of, of the brand and it, it felt appropriate for that company, but I wouldn't just apply it to every company that I do as a general template. How did you feel comfortable doing that? I mean, I know there's a lot of stories when you guys came on the scene. I mean, first of all, Groupon, weren't you like technically the fastest growing company of all time or something for like a few years? Yeah. So yeah, congrats on that. Um, and Thank then, you. but that was happening and there's obviously the tech press was going wild. This company out of Chicago, just out of nowhere, you know, not from the Valley, all this stuff was happening. And then I felt like I couldn't decide at the time, like are, there was leaks about like the time you pretended to sell the business as an example. Um, and <laughs> you mean at, at our all hands meeting? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Which I couldn't decide when you were doing that. And also like what I, the, the dots that I connected externally were like, okay, this company is like giving you permission to have fun and it's selling fun experiences basically, or, or deals on stuff. So you're like going wild. And that, that seemed like that permeated over time. Like you built confidence in that. And then that started to permeate everything. So it's like, when I heard about that story, of you, you know, at an all hands pretending to sell the company. I was like, this guy's wild. But it was congruent with the crazy copy of the hummingbird thing. It's like, to me, that's one, it's a similar thread. It's like actually living your values. It's a pretty extreme way. But what did that feel like to make those decisions around the brand? Because I, I, so many people struggle with how to get confident taking a stand. And you don't seem to have that problem at all. Man, you know, it's funny. I, I've been listening to I, I'm, I'm now doing a SaaS company, and I'm a total SaaS noob. I know nothing. I know nothing about SaaS, and and I and I'm trying to school myself and learn from a lot of people. I'm listening to podcasts about SaaS. I listen to like uh, Saster. Is that what it's called with mm-hmm. Harry Stebbings? Oh, the, and I learned yeah. so much from there. And and you get these. And, and I've noticed there's like two kinds of guests you'll get. You get like the professional executives, and they come on and they just have like models and structured thoughts around all kinds of things. And then you get founders on there and they just, they, they just wing it. They're just like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating it a little bit. It's not always that way. I think that's kind of, I'm telling you that cause I think that's kind of indicative of what it was like. Like it wasn't this premeditated process where we were like, let's prove the model with our brand that we can be a little bit irreverent or, goofy or whatever it is. And if that goes well, we'll apply that internally to some elements of the culture or vice versa. It's just what we were. It's just who we were as people. And it's what came naturally to us. And I think we always felt like if we were going to do this, we wanted to do it in a way that felt like us. And, and that worked. First of all, I agree with you in terms of the types of guests. Let's, let's be clear. There's like, usually the people who are like the SaaS models, oh, we just, crank and dial these numbers and we got a great business here, like blah, blah, blah. And then there's the lunatic founders. And, you know, a lot of what the lunatic founders say is not true. But somewhere in there, you have people who figure this stuff out. Uh, one of the things I think a lot about is like, if you're not continuing to scare yourself, you're probably not thinking big enough. And you have to push yourself as an entrepreneur. So if you can do those types of things, if you can take those risks, if you can evolve the culture, you're creating an environment where people can do more creative work. It's a, kind of a funny link because it's like, on the Groupon side, it was the brand and the culture and all of this. And then I would love to know if you agree with this or disagree with it. Is like in Descript, it's actually about enabling other people to be more creative through use of, of the tool. Of course. Yeah, I, I do agree with that. There, there's such different companies, like the, the genetics of the companies are so incredibly different that a lot of the lessons and experiences that I had at Groupon haven't been particularly uh, useful. I mean, a lot have, but it's so different. Like we're mostly just building a product where the end state is pretty well defined. Like we're building a tool that allows people to realize their creative vision, to take the stuff that's happening in their head and translate it to the speakers or the screen or what have you. And our job is to find the way to do that that is the most intuitive, the fastest, the most fun. And in contrast, Groupon, I think it's a more standard story to what happens with a lot of tech companies where 
you're rooting around and experimenting, and all of a sudden you unearth something that absolutely explodes. You're hanging on for dear life, trying to figure out what it is that you're actually holding on to. You kind of graft a vision and purpose on onto it mid-flight and try to come up with something that feels good for everybody. But really, it's its own thing and its own entity. And a lot of times that thing has a pretty stark half-life and you have to find a way to innovate your way into the next thing. And that was certainly the case with Groupon, where we had this daily deal business. And in the beginning, it was wonderful. Like It was a catalyst for getting people out into the world and discovering and doing things that they wouldn't have normally done. And it was great for everybody. It was great for the businesses because they got these new customers and it was a source of discovery. And then what happened was it was so easy to copy that and and so profitable that everybody copied it and it invalidated the entire model because we no longer had the scarcity. All of a sudden, there were hundreds of deals in a day across all the different sites. And the fact that we only owned one of them didn't make a difference. The model had evolved into more of a marketplace and the novelty was no longer there. On any given day, you could go find a Manny Petty or skydiving daily deal or whatever it was. And so we were in a position where we had to evolve and had to figure out what the next thing was going to be. And with Descript, it's totally different where all we have to do at this point is just keep doing the thing that we're doing for years and years and years and do it really, really well. And that's how we'll grow that business. I like thinking about the difference between the two businesses, the way you're talking about, like there's a path and a plan for what you're trying to do with Descript. And I think a lot of SaaS companies, they try to figure out the problem they're solving for customers and then they try to solve it better and more completely and better and more completely. How do you think about how you're capitalizing the business, I guess, now? In the case of Descript, the vision that we've had from the beginning when we started this company was very much what you see today. Like if you look at the cover of the seed deck, we show it as a video editing tool. But the first release was basically a glorified transcription tool. And then after that, it was a podcasting tool. So it was trickier to get people bought in because they would be like, look, this this tool is magic. What you guys are doing is really cool. But how big is podcasting? And I'd say, no, 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 it's not about podcasting. And they'd say, yeah, but you know, my pattern, pattern recognition tells me that normally companies will get bogged down in the market that they're doing now and won't be able to expand the market into that whatever, like come back to me when you're actually doing the video thing and you have those customers lined up. And so the fundraising process was harder and less straightforward just because the market size of of what we were doing wasn't as completely obvious, but it forced some discipline and deep thought about these things that ended up being useful for the company. And now that we're a little bit later on and we have a lot of really excited customers and we've got this video product out, we've, it's gotten much, much easier. Yeah, that's awesome. I think it's a good lesson too for people who are trying to think about, you know, should it be easy to fundraise or should it not? Or how important is it getting that story right? Or how important is it to have confidence that you're going to be evolving a market Also for customers, I think it's interesting, the signals that that sends, right? Every time you add something new and and different that starts to lay out the roadmap for 
a customer, they buy differently. At least that's been my experience. Like I remember when we launched simple feature, but we launched email capture over a video called Turnstile. And we were like, we did it for ourselves because we had all these like long form videos we had made. And we thought, hey, maybe people will actually sign up for this instead of a webinar. So we did it, it worked, we launched it. And then I had someone who had been following Wistia text me and they're like, wow, okay, so you're going in this direction. And I'm like, what direction are you talking about? <laughs> it's like, he's like, oh, you're, tr you're trying to turn it into a marketing tool that's helping them, that's helping your customers with video. And I was like, well, I guess, yes, that's what we're trying to do. And then we started to get customers that bought on the premise of like what we might make in the future, right? Which is a really interesting thing because switching products, if you get used to a product and you like a product, like switching products gets harder. And so we do start buying based on the future things. And it seems like that's the same thing as raising money as well. Yeah, that's interesting. We haven't, I don't know how much we've encountered that yet where we're getting credit, forward credit for features that we haven't built yet. But you're, you're that getting sounds it. awesome. I, I want some of that. Yeah, I can tell you you're getting it. <laughs> Do you talk to your customers about what you're going to build in the future or are you pretty tight-lipped about that? The truth is pretty tight-lipped except not with some customers. You know, I think it's like both. Like That was like the most web MD. I'm sorry, yeah. You're the, like... <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I think we've, we will tell people what's coming next. Um, the thing that we don't tend to do is like tell people things that are much farther in the future because we don't want to get the timing really wrong. And I've made that mistake too, where I've said to somebody like, oh, I think this is going to come in six months. And then we made a major reprioritization and now it's, you know, two years down the road. And I think that's just big, like our space has expanded so much and there's so much opportunity. There's just an enormous amount of things for us to do. And so trying to get the order right has been one of the things I think is like one of the hardest parts of building a, a great product is trying to get the order right. The order of what to build when. Yeah. 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 I, I struggle with that too, because our product is used by such a wide array of personas, if you will. You know, we have podcasters, people that are using it purely for transcription, pro video editors, more like amateurs, people on the creative side, people on the business side. The good news for us is that they, all of the requests neatly synthesize into one product. Like we're not worried about creating this Frankenstein by building all the things, but there's a sequencing question. And we're now 38 people We've just closed our Series B, so we still don't have like any product managers or anyone in marketing, really. So we're hiring those people, and I'm hoping they'll be able to help me with like customer segmentation and MBA stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Got the MBAs coming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the sequencing is really hard, and whenever you have a horizontal product that can be used by so many different use cases, it's very hard. We made a really hard decision four years ago to have our introductory price be $100 a month instead of 25. And it's a big difference in our world. And it was a very, very tough decision. And the reason we did it was because we did a lot of research. We talked to a lot of customers. We looked at people who use the product the most. And the people who could spend $100 a month were like happier and stickier and had a different list of things that they wanted in the product and all of that. It helped with that sequencing. It's one of those weird things of like, you get bigger and you have to focus more until the moment that you have to blow it all up and you got to go really wide. And then you have to, it's, you, you go, it's like seasons of building a product 
for us, we've been around for a long time. You know, I mean, we started 14 years ago. And so the Wistia today is an evolution of the product that launched 13 years ago. And we've had to kill a lot of stuff that used to exist and remake a lot of stuff. And we were solving different problems in the early days. And so obviously it can't be the same thing. And right now, like if you're paying close attention, we've launched a lot of stuff that people wouldn't know about unless we told them where we're rebuilding parts of the app to make it dramatically faster, as an example. And soon the entire app will be fully rebuilt and will be dramatically faster, which will then completely speed up our development processes and the speed with which we can launch things. But we have to do this because we've existed for so long. And if we didn't, it would just be, you know, building. It's just, it's, yeah, it's, these are all tough problems. These are really, it's hard problems to get right, especially because I think like the signal on whether or not they're working can be lost in growth. And it can also be as you're transitioning to like a different segment or something, you can, you can not realize sometimes the, the effects of, of what you've done where, you know, we have tons of different customers too. And there's been times we've built things or killed things and we thought it was fine. It actually hurt other customers or brought it back. It's a balancing act when your product continues to exist as, you know, hosted on the internet for everyone to use. <laughs> I feel like I'm, we're like all in a bar and I'm just like silently gazing at you two having this very insidery conversation, <laughs> which is fascinating. And parts of it are going over my head. So I'm just thinking like about the listener here. Can we ask you, can we ask you, Andrew, what's got you talking too loud? What's got me talking too loud? Meaning what's something that animates me? Meaning what's something that animates you? Uh, <laughs> Dramatic pause. What are some things that other people say? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> you can't copy answers. Um, like airline peanuts? Wow. You know how hard they are to open? <laughs> Uh, what else? Um, is this going better? Is this what you were hoping for? <laughs> well, I guess, yeah, what the, you know, the show's called talking too loud cause I talk too loud when I get excited which I think you can tell. And obviously people do different things when they get excited or passionate. I, and I've watched you get pretty passionate actually during a few moments of this, as you're talking about, you know, being the musician concerned about being the sellout and then like the things that you did to combat that, at least that, that seemed to me like something you were pretty fired up about. Mm. No, I'm not getting anything there. <laughs> I'm not feeling anything. So is that is that the key to success is just being emotionless? Emotionless? It helps. <laughs> you know, it helps when you need to make those big decisions. The problem is it makes you a terrible like parent. So you have to be willing to make those trade-offs. I don't think I could do my first startup and have little kids at the same time. Why? Because it's, it's a lot of work and a lot of stress. Are you stressed? Well, I think when you're doing it the first time, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of stress and there's stress, but it's, it's much more manageable. And again, it comes, I think like I have a hard time giving advice because I feel like, first of all, there's people that are really good at that and tying it up in a, in a pithy way and packaging things. But a, a lot of those truisms that are out there are right, but like, you know, 80% of them are right, say, but it's a different 80% for every business. And again, like I think the, 
mechanics and genetics of every business is so different that it's hard to just give really good generalized advice on things. Like people would always say when we were building Groupon, I remember reading lots of stuff not to pay attention to your competitors. And at Groupon, like it was really a zero sum game. The competition really, really mattered. And there was a lot of, I think, justified attention on competition. But in the case of Descript, it's not really that way. It really is like you're just in a race and against yourself and um, and it's all about execution and that matters much more than what the competition does. So don't you think though that, I mean, obviously you get advice and you learn, how do you decide what to listen to and what not to listen to? The stuff that makes sense I listen to, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to answer that. Like, uh, like you, you talk about it and you listen and if you, if it makes sense and you're convinced, then then you go with it, but you try to just keep at it and keep asking questions and trying to understand until you really do feel like you you understand. Is there anyone who you look to who gives you advice or guidance and helps you figure out like the stuff, or do you go internally for everything? Different people, I guess, for for different types of things that I've you know that are always useful to be able to talk to who have subject matter expertise in, in something. I think a lot about that too, that there's so many people out there giving advice. There's like the Gary V advice of just like hustle your face off and blah, blah, blah. And that it's a lot of it's conflicting to your point. Do you, should you never focus on competitors or always focus on competitors? You know, should you always start down market or go up market? Like, should you build your product first or should you sell a customer without having a product? Like what I've decided for myself over these years is like, it's my job to decide what advice to filter. And so I should get good advice from a series of different places. And for me, it's like it's a mix of my team and people who are deeply involved in the business but not operational and people who only care about me and don't understand the business and you know this whole different mix of stuff. And when I give advice to entrepreneurs, which ends up happening, I usually tell them like the same thing. It's like your job to decide. It's your job to decide if this advice is any good. I don't know. Like, it's just like my opinion. You know, I've been right on a bunch of stuff and I've been wrong on a hell of a lot. And I feel like that's a kind of a, it's actually almost, I think what makes me addicted to building a company is that there's always new problems to solve and I don't know what the answers are. And so I have to try to find out the answer, but that it is, you can only really, you can get all the different inputs, but ultimately it's up to you to decide, right? Like, does this make, as you said, does this make sense? Or does it not make sense? Which is such a simple filter, but I think is actually really helpful. Yeah. The tricky thing about it is if like the um, 26-year-old version of me walked into my office and pitched me the idea for the site that would become Groupon, I would have, you know, effectively laughed him out of the room and just told him all the reasons that it was DOA. And luckily for me, I had some backers that, didn't see, didn't see that they, maybe they saw something else and gave it a shot and allowed me to get into the mess and make a bunch of mistakes and try to pull something out of the ashes. And that worked out, you know, similarly with, with building Descript, Descript started out as an internal tool inside of Detour when it was like a seven person company and all of a sudden we're investing in building basically an entirely different startup before we have anything remotely close to product market fit in the first product. 
like any anyone would tell you that that was a gloriously irresponsible thing to do. I was funding it myself at the time, so I just felt like I had a kind of permission to be able to do those things and ignore all the advice I'd been giving people when I was briefly a part-time partner at Y Combinator. But yeah, it worked out. It probably most times wouldn't and would have been bad advice. Then right after we launched Descript, the first thing we did was stop everything and rebuild it so it wasn't a native Mac app. And instead it was built using web tech and to be collaborative. So like <laughs> the moment you launch stopping and doing a huge re-architecture, again, just like t- would have been terrible advice, but somehow it was right in this situation. And so, and that was just like, you know, thinking it through and, and feeling like it made sense and it, and it worked out okay. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question I, that I don't have the answer to at all. I wish I did, which is just like how to know when the 26-year-old or the 22-year-old or the, the person with the wild idea doing the impossible thing, you should listen to them or not. Like, do you have an answer to that when you would listen to yourself again as a 26-year-old? I, I think it's more about how you adapt when you, like knowing that you have that quality. Like my dad, when he talks about me as a kid, he, he always says that I had this unearned false sense of confidence and uh, like whatever it is. And, and that has allowed me to dive into things that I have no business diving into. And you get a lot of things wrong when you do that. But as long as you're willing to see that and adapt and move on and adjust to your mistakes, then it's okay. So I'd be inclined to listen to the crazy ideas from the, the 26 year old, as long as we can fix them if they don't work out. I kind of want to go deeper on the confidence thing, like the unearned confidence. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, like it definitely requires that, right? Like getting, getting going in this world of like, of course, I'm going to tackle a giant problem. But you, I know you, you started a bagel delivery venture, Mm -hmm. like pre, pre Uber Eats, pre Postmates, (laughs) pre everything. Was that the same? I think for those people who don't know, right, you were buying bagels at discounted rates and selling them at full price plus delivery fees or something. And you, if this is, if the story is true, you had a radio flyer wagon, you like pulled this stuff around and you're like, it was just like a paper route. I mean, yeah, it was just like a little like way to make money as a 14 year old or a 15 year old, but sure. Yeah. So when you were doing that, did you just have confidence like from the beginning? Like, of course, yeah, I can go make a bunch of money selling bagels. Like, let's go. And is that the same thing that you have now? I think so. Yeah. Or like even younger than that, when we were like 10 or something, there was a little like a strip of raspberry bushes in between my backyard and the bowling alley behind my house. And we picked some of the raspberries and made these like grody muffins and just went door to door and tried to sell them to to people (laughs) like with a with like a plate, a plate of muffins, like not wrapped or anything. And it was in retrospect, it was like it was disgusting and nobody bought them. But that didn't occur to me until probably like decades later that there was uh, (laughs) that I should have been ashamed to to do something like that. And when you were doing that, I mean, what was motivating you? Was it was it like money, money, money? Okay, (laughs) yeah. So it's like very confident. I'm going to make money with these muffins. Yeah, I like. I wanted a Palm Pilot. I think. Yeah, or nice. Something like that. Oh, nice. Those palm, early day Palm Pilot. <laughs> yeah, let's go. <laughs> Those are sick. <laughs> Sylvie's like dying right now. She's like, "What are you nerds talking about?" 
Okay. And then obviously Groupon did well. So you solved the money problem, I think. Yeah. What's motivating you now? Making stuff, getting to work with really smart people. And I don't know if you've tried, like, had the, you know, after, after Groupon, I just sat on my couch after having gotten fired and was just like, I don't have to get up again. Like, I could just order pizzas and... And then you just stare into the darkness and you see your inevitable death. And then you just uh, take it away, you know, and, and, and so you start working again so that you don't have to face the inevitability of, of the end. And, you know, especially once you have kids, there's only darkness ahead. Right? <laughs> just with kids, there's just darkness ahead? Well, I mean, you're the appeal of kids is that there's this nostalgic element of reliving your own childhood and and that has a sadness to it and i mean it's nice to watch them grow up but you're constantly thinking about your own age and and death and they're kind of a reminder of that that you're being that you're being phased out so that's why we work wow 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 don't you wow, think wow, wow, wow. <laughs> You know, I, I agree with many parts of that. I don't know I would put it the same exact way, but yeah, I, I agree with you. This is actually a parenting yeah, podcast. Yeah. I don't know if you yeah. that. I agree with you that having kids makes you think about your own, I won't say death, I'll say life, but like what how you lead your life. You know, it's funny. I have not had the experience of not working since starting Wistia, but we did have a moment where we thought we we're going to sell the business, right? And one of the things that I was afraid of is that if we sold the business, I'd be sitting around and then my kids would be like, so what do you do? And I'd be like, yeah, I just sit around and like, how can you do that? Like I, this tech thing that you don't understand that like, it just was, it was like, that is that the example I want to set? Like, and yeah, it does, it does make you think at least for me, yes, a little bit about death, but also about, about life and like how you lead the best life you can with your kids. At least that's how that's a, I think the pandemic has done that to me as well. Just all the time thinking like I never would have spent as much time with my kids at this, at these ages otherwise. And I'm super thankful. Like it's horrible what's going on. It's, it's sad. So sad. But this silver lining for me is like, I'm, I'm thankful to spend time with them. I know that's not really what we're talking about, but that's, that's where I've gone. <laughs> <laughs> Hearing both of you talk, like I think everyone can relate to this idea of never wanting to be obsolete, right? And so I'm wondering, like specifically with Descript, like sometime as, as a producer, as an editor, I'm like, is this going to put me out of a job? Like, <laughs> I'm so curious about like how it's helping like build on existing sort of creative creative work and in like, do you, what's the future of Descript? Like, what do you hope for the next five years? So we kind of hold up the, the word processor as the gold standard for creative tools, which on the surface sounds dumb because it's like a, a word processor. It's not, <laughs> nobody thinks of that as this incredibly elegant, uh, object. But the great thing about it is if you're a writer at the beginning of your career, you learn how to type and then that's it. Like you're focused on your craft and improving your craft. The tool is out of the way. There's almost no friction between an idea and its expression. And we want to create that same kind of feeling for people who are making audio and video, where 
you can just be completely focused on your craft and the tool is out of the way, the technical elements of using the tool. And you're just in your editorial creative brain. And we think that, you know, as is often the case with technology, our hope would be that this expands the market of people who can make this kind of content. You know, the, the problem with audio and video or video are, are, the, are much easier to create than it is to create text, right? All you have to do is open your mouth and you're creating audio. The problem is the editing. You know, the, the nice thing about text is the backspace key and the ability to allow it to adapt to your thoughts and not need to go with the first thing that came out of your head. And so that's what we're trying to provide. And our hope is that by giving audio and video that same kind of fluidity that lots more people will be making stuff. And in a world where traditional sources of meaning like work are being replaced by robots or whatever else, I think like the one thing that robots will never be able to take away from us is our subjective experience of reality and our ability to share that with our loved ones. And we're trying to create a tool that lets people do that. And, 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 and maybe make you obsolete along the way. <laughs> Sorry, not really. You had to twist that. I had to, had to throw it in there. <laughs> Look, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking at a very reasonable level. And um, <laughs> it was fun to chat and talk about, you know, all of this stuff. And we appreciate you being here. And we're big fans. Super excited about what you're doing. Can't wait to see where it goes. Thank you. It was fun to be here. Whatever Andrew says, I still think of him as a prankster. I still think of that guy. <laughs> if you're going to get up there and pretend you sold your company, to me, you're a prankster. I know he's... You're pranking. Himself, yeah, he's a little pranking. Pulling some pranks. I was expecting, you know, a little wild craziness. He's very even keeled, Andrew, right? Very even yeah. keeled. Yeah. Yeah, it was funny that he didn't... Prankster is not the word that he would choose. Yeah. But I feel like towards the end, he was like, yeah, I got jokes. Yeah. Like he, <laughs> I, got I got jokes. jokes. I got a few jokes I got over jokes. here. <laughs> yeah, but a real difference between Groupon and Descript, no? Huge, huge differences. When he was talking about the fact that you know, Groupon was almost accidental and like the opposite of their intention, you know, really, really good intention to do something right and then end up making a, a product and a, a company, a concept that was new that took off so fast that it's like, well, we don't know what to do next. Like, you know, that, that, was, yeah. that was so interesting because we don't really hear that many stories about that, right? When it's like you have something and it's literally like a company, a business model, an approach going viral. It's like, well, we didn't, we raised money, but like, uh, what are we going to do? We have to f map our values onto this thing. Yes. And it felt like they were constantly like iterating, just like how it started as the point, right? That's how yep. it started. And then it iterated. And then they were like, oh my God, we're making coupons now. Like, yes. What? Yeah. And I think like, and the coupon thing, imagine it taking off a thousand times more than anything you've ever done in like three I months can't. time. Right. And it's even as, even as he was talking about, I was like, does he know how, how fast this thing explodes? Like you were saying it grew faster than, than it's the Google. fastest growing company in the world. Yeah. For that's for, crazy. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's so interesting because I also think about the prankster thing. Like I don't, what would I do in that moment? Like I would probably be terrified. Like if you have something that's growing, if you're the fastest growing company in the world, part of you has got to be thinking like, well, 
like, I, am I an imposter? Like, how did this, how did this happen? Like, why Ugh. me? Why now? And then I, I guess I'm I can. Mad. We didn't, we, you know, we missed an opportunity. That was me, Savage. We missed an opportunity to talk, to talk about imposter syndrome. Yeah, well, I know you always want to talk about that next time. Next, next time. time. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it was like, even interesting to think about what type of culture, what type of values, all those things, which are very hard to figure out, I think, in that scenario versus Descript, which is like really purposeful. He knows exactly Mm -hmm. what he's trying to do, like to the point of like, well, we know what we're going to build on. Now I just have to build it. Right. That's polar opposites. I mean, I feel like Wistia is a lot closer to the Descript side of like, we kind of know what we're going to do and we're really intentional and it, it gives us the opportunity to be really intentional. And I, I don't always think about that because I think it's so easy to have FOMO of like, well, why aren't why am I not the fastest growing thing on the planet? Like, why not me? But on that side, you kind of miss the, the ability to be intentional. And then you have this other thing you don't even realize, like how valuable it is, I think. So it's, it's very cool to talk yeah, to I someone felt- who's done both. When he was talking about Descript, I felt like there were a lot of similarities between Descript and Wistia and that you guys were kind of like, I don't know. I felt like I was watching a little CEO, CEO brainstorm. <laughs> <laughs> brainstorm. And at least it wasn't a blame storm, you know? Those, it wasn't a blame storm. You don't, you don't, we don't see those as often, but that's, you don't want to watch that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. And, you know, it was funny when we asked him, because got him talking too loud, and he's like, airplane peanuts. <laughs> you know why that's funny? Because earlier in this pandemic, you know, airlines hit so hard, right? Like, and United had this issue, I believe it was United, where they have all these first class peanuts that they've pre and nuts, these gourmet nuts that they've paid for, they can't give them to anybody. And you're not going to believe this, but the place that supplies the nuts, mm-hmm. they only what, supply what United. What constitutes a gourmet nut? Just, it's, just curious. Oh, it's got just crystallized <laughs> zhuzh on it. It's got, it's got, uh, <laughs> It's salt and sugar. It's got, uh, you know, sometimes there's mixed in a little, a little. uh, (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love listening to you describe A little pineapple in there. A little little macadamia, you know, just all all that kind of stuff. Anyway, I bought so many nuts from greatnuts.com. There was all this like (laughs) united first class like uh, selection. It really was. For Wistia? For Wistia or for your personal collection? For my personal collection. (laughs) For my first collection. <laughs> it was at a deep discount, very delicious. So, but it got me, you know, as you could tell, I got very excited about uh, about these airplane nuts. Wow. So well, there's something, we have a connection there, Andrew and I. Okay, we've gone far off the deep end. If you're still with us, thanks for tuning in today. Um, we love your support and would love if you could rate the show and review it. Send us any feedback you have to ttlpod at wistia.com. And we hope you're you're doing well out there, world. So uh, does the whole world hear this, Sylvia? Is this how this works? <laughs> I, I love when you address the world, actually. All right, world. I think we'll see you tomorrow. That, that raises the bar. <laughs> okay. That raises the bar for me. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. All right, bye. Bye. Talking Too Loud is brought to you by Wistia, hosted by Chris Savage, produced by me, Sylvie Lubau, along with Adam Day, executive produced by Wistia Studios. This episode was mixed by Grant Cutler. Listen to Talking Too Loud wherever you listen to podcasts. And hey, rate and review us wherever you listen. And check out more content from Wistia Studios at wistia.com.